Good morning, church. My name is Ben, and I have the privilege of reading our scripture for us this morning. It comes from Acts chapter 24. So if you would turn there with me and follow along as I read God's word for us this morning. Acts chapter 24. It says, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it was, no, it was not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man, now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he, went, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Well, just two things before we, before we pray. Two weeks ago, I mentioned that 
after church, our staff was going to jump in a van and drive to Indianapolis for the Gospel Coalition's conference uh, for church leaders. There was 4,000 of us there from across the country, perhaps, I guess, the world, and it was a wonderful time. Um, it was three days of, of laughing and praying and being preached at by, by, and taught uh, from thoughtful women and men who love Jesus. And so I just want to say thank you for sending us. Uh, we're so glad that we went. The other thing I want to mention, I'm not sure if you even noticed it as it was read there so quickly on the scripture, you know, as it's on the slides or in, in your hands there, but there is an issue with three of the verses in the passage, and I just wanted to address that as we go into the passage and, and then pray. The second half of verse 6, all of verse 7, and the beginning of verse 8 are missing or have been removed, I should say. Most Bibles note that with a footnote. Our pew Bibles don't do that. They're very simple ones, but most modern Bibles, the one I'm holding up here, has a little footnote about that. Those verses were in early manuscripts, which is to say, as Christians were collecting all the copies and of Bibles that they had, um, those verses were there. And so when the chapters and verse numbers were added, which happened later just so that people could talk intelligibly with another, so Acts chapter 24, right? That could mean something. We could all turn to the same place. When we added those, those verses were there. This is some 400 years ago. But now, because so many thousands of manuscripts, and I'm not being hyperbolic, there are thousands of New Testament manuscripts, it would seem to suggest that those, some 400 years ago, those couple verses um, weren't original. Now, if you have a Bible that has a footnote that has them in there, nothing theologically dramatic happens in those verses. They simply explain the story in a little more detail. And I'm sure mentioning this, though, could be a little troubling. Some of you, like, okay, if those verses are missing. Like, like, how do we trust the Bible at all if all these shifting verses are around? Let me just say this is very, very rare. And when it does happen, Christians don't hide it. Like, it's, it's in there in a footnote. There's, there's, you know, it, it's calling attention to it, just as I am right now in the sermon. So that, rather than undermining your conviction that the Scriptures are authoritative and trustworthy, rather, my hope would be to encourage you that Christians take the Scriptures very seriously, and we have nothing to hide. It's all there for our good and for God's glory. So with that thought in mind, Let's pray and ask God to use his word to teach us. Lord, we thank you for the faithful women and men throughout the ages who have clung to scripture. And at great cost to themselves at times, copied it, smuggled it, and translated it. for the life-giving power that they believed it possessed, indeed it does possess. Lord, I pray now as we look at this passage that you would be our teacher. And even as Colton was praying, that you would call us not only into a deeper knowledge of you, but a love for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll have to be honest right off the bat, this week was a doozy. Um, sometimes they happen in pastoral ministry, and I kept trying to make time to write my sermon. Um, 
and it didn't happen very well. Um, I wish I could just say the dog ate my homework, but I, you have to do it for the dog to eat your homework. So things just kept coming up, and I, I just kept putting it off. So um, it's rather embarrassing, but that's what happened. And so, okay, now I'm just going to pause. If I started the sermon that way, which I like, I, you just did start the sermon that way. If I started that sermon in this way, how are you feeling? Like, you're, you're confused, especially if you're visiting. You're like, is that normal? Does he, does he, does he normally have a sermon? Um, like, he should have a sermon. <laughs> and most of you, truthfully, who've been here a long time, you know that you'd probably be like, okay, he's just going to stumble through. That happens this week, 150 times before this. This has never happened. It's probably not going to happen again. It didn't happen this week. I did prepare a sermon, but, but I wanted to prepare us to hear about procrastination just for a moment. Like to feel, oh, like someone should have prepared. They should have been ready, but they're not. And I don't simply mean when I'm talking about procrastination here in the sermon, I don't mean procrastination as a temperament or a general way of doing things, going about your life, kind of waiting to the last minute. That might be fine. It might be a problem. That's not mainly what I'm talking about. Rather, I mean procrastination as a spiritual disposition of your heart. A very dangerous disposition. What we see in this passage and in our lives is that delaying obedience today only makes obedience harder tomorrow and maybe even impossible This passage confronts a spiritual temperament in our church that I think really needs to be confronted. The pride in our hearts that wants to have a version of Christianity that isn't warm towards God, but rather is cool and aloof. This passage confronts a version of Christianity that's passionless, that's professional, that has calculated affection that delays obedience to God till just the right time, we think. Which is to say, this passage confronts a version of Christianity that's not real Christianity. And it also gives us something much, much better. A version of Christianity that offers real hope and real, what we're going to see, stability. In Acts 24, there are two trial scenes, two scenes with someone on trial. Let's talk about the first trial. I won't recap all that's happened to bring us to Acts chapter 24, but in verses 1 through 23, we find that Paul is on trial. He's in a city called Caesarea. The trial is before the Roman governor Felix, and many of the key Jewish leaders are there, including Ananias, we're told, the high priest. The Jews, it seems, they've hired a big-shot lawyer, an orator named Tertullus. If you had lived in ancient Israel, you would have seen Tertullus's face all over billboards. Tertullus would have been making a power move of some kind on the billboard, right? Folding his arms, pointing his finger. His number would have been... All one, his phone number would have been all one number so you could remember it. Of course, if you called that number, you're not going to get Tertullus because he's too busy. Except for when he's not. If you had a flamboyant case as the Jews had against Paul, you'd get Tertullus. 
And when you get Tertullus, what do you have? Well, let's look at his remarks in verses 1 through 8. Let me read them again. Tertullus begins, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellence Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague. One who stirs up riots throughout all the Jews, throughout, or it's among all the Jews throughout all the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Do you notice that thick flattery? Enjoy much peace, your foresight, most excellent Felix. Tertullus speaks of reforms for this nation in every way and everywhere, and he speaks of all gratitude. And because Felix is so important, Tertullus wants to detain him no further. And so on, flattery. And when Tertullus speaks of enjoying much peace under the rule of Governor Felix, that's crazy talk. And everyone knew it. History tells us that Felix was the worst governor to date. And under his reign, there were so many uprisings that he had to be removed by the emperor a few years after this. And I don't mean this as a slam against our former president. So I don't want you to laugh. I'm not trying to be funny or cute. But what Tertullus does here would be like a religious leader who's full of baloney, engaging with President Trump on Twitter, telling Trump how kind he is to all of his Twitter followers. Like everybody knows that's, now that may or not made him a good president or a bad president. It may be irrelevant. It may just, it may even be a good thing. It may be bad. Again, people have opinions on that. But, but to say that, you know, okay, that's not true. <laughs> he was harsh. What I'm trying to say is that what Tertullius is doing here is he's full of baloney and everyone knew it. Tertullus makes three accusations. First, he says that Paul is a plague who spreads the disease of riots throughout the Roman Empire. A serious accusation that Felix would have had to take him seriously because of his problems with peace in his, uh, the area under his jurisdiction. Second, Tertullus says that Paul is a religious leader of a small splinter group. Tertullus can't even say the name Jesus or Christianity, so he uses the negative connotations of a backwater town Nazareth, a sect of the Nazarenes, where Jesus was from. Third, Tertullus says that Paul tried to profane the temple, but we, the Jews, stopped him, which isn't exactly how it went down, but let's look at how Paul responds. Verse 10. I'm going to read all of 10 through, I think it's 23. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing for many years how you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. 
You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can anyone they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which is they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets, come back to this phrase here in verse 15 at the very end, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms. It's a a gift of money to, to those who are poor. I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple. So in other words, following the rules. Without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, and he stops himself here, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation, um, should they have anything against me. Verse 20, or else let these men say, what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, in a summary here, Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, Put them off, saying, when Lioness, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he, Paul, should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. First, Tertullus accused Paul of uprisings. Paul says he didn't do that. In fact, he'd only been there 12 days, and when he was there, um, which is not long enough time to start a revolt, but it's long enough to follow the rules and purify yourself in the temple, and that's the one thing I was doing in addition to bringing the sum of money to give to the needy. Second, Tertullus accused Paul of being a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Paul says, that's sort of true, but not really. Actually, Paul says, I worship the same God as them. God of our Jewish fathers, verse 14. I have the same truth as them. The truth in the law and the prophets, verse 14. I have the same hope as them. The hope of the resurrection, verse 15. And my conscience is clear, meaning ethics and integrity matter to me, verse 16. So, am I the ringleader of a sect? Well, Paul says, if by sect... You mean, I understand myself to be standing in the exact center of faithful Judaism, which is the Judaism that embraces the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, then I guess I am. Third, Tertullus accused Paul of profaning the temple. Paul says, there are lots and lots of witnesses that I didn't do that. Felix says he'll delay the verdict, that He'll procrastinate doing what he knows is right, namely letting Paul go. Instead, Paul, or Felix puts Paul in prison and he goes to see him. The first trial is over. But that begins the second. The second trial in this passage. It's, it's, it's not a formal trial. It's not labeled a trial. But I think we should see it as such. This time, Paul, the one who was accused, helps Felix and his wife, Drusilla, know what it will feel like for them to stand trial before God. Let me read verses 24 and 27. 
After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. And so he sent for him and often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, the new governor in town. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left for Paul in prison. You have Luke being fairly gracious at that transition of power. And the way he describes it. Think about those two years for a moment. In the opening lines of Luke's gospel, Luke mentions volume one of gospel of Luke, volume two of the book of Acts. In those opening verses of the book of Acts, volume one, Luke mentions that he invested everything about Christianity and wrote it down. Some scholars speculate that these two years were significant in that research. Paul was stationary. And they were geographically in a centralized location, strategic for Luke to conduct his interviews. We can't know that for sure. But it seems plausible that God was using even this frustrating two-year delay. And I mention that just to say that maybe some of you feel like God has delays in your life right now. And you hate it. Know that God wants to use this time of apparent delay still to serve him. Speaking of using that two-year delay, God does use Paul to speak to Felix about Jesus. A few weeks ago, I was trying to bring us back in after Lent to the book of Acts and kind of orient us to what's going on in the book of Acts. And I described it this way. I said, really the book of Acts is sort of in thirds. You've got the first third, Paul's not even a Christian. Jesus goes back to heaven. Paul's not even a Christian yet. The middle third, Paul's a Christian. He's doing missionary journeys. And then I said, the last third, which is the third we're in, and now we're at the end of the, we're the last third of the last third, which is like the last ninth, I think. <laughs> it's hard when you're all staring at me to do math. But anyway, um, we're in the last ninth of the last the third. Okay, very confusing. But I described it in those thirds. Like Paul's not a Christian. Paul's a Christian doing missionary journeys. And Paul's in one jail or another on his way to Rome. I, all that's true, but it overstates something about that last third, which is this. That his time in one jail or another looks a lot like his missionary journeys. The Paul in jail looks a lot like the missionary journey, Paul, because it's the same Paul. Again, you may feel like you can't serve God in your current situation. If only this would change, or that would change. Well, then I could, God could use me. Then I would serve him. Then I'd do big things. Hmm. Let God use you now. Right where you're at. Be content and joyful in that. Because God certainly uses Paul here. Look at Paul's Three-point sermon to Felix and Drusilla. What's his outline? Luke records it here. Verse 25, we read, Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control 
and the coming judgment. So this is, he already has an accurate knowledge of the way. He knows about Jesus. So like Paul goes for righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. And you need to know something about Paul's audience that Paul knew about his audience. But we only really know through study, which is this. Drusilla was Felix's third wife. His two previous wives were both, as one commentator put it, princesses because of their connection to royalty, which is the same that's true of Drusilla. She's in the family line of the Herods. She's Jewish nobility. She's a princess. And at the time of this encounter with Paul, history tells us that she's just under 20 years old and she's beautiful. That's what history tells us. Felix is the kind of ruler who only marries young, wealthy princesses. Also, history tells us Drusilla had been previously married, and Felix forced an ending to that first marriage so he could marry her. Felix is known for being ruthless and taking bribes, so perhaps it caught his attention when Paul said, I'm in Jerusalem to give alms. I have a big bag of money. Maybe he's thinking, maybe this is a guy who can collect more money and give me a bribe. Now you know more about Paul's audience. Today we can talk about preaching sermons that are relevant. Paul believed in preaching sermons that are relevant. It's just what we often mean by relevant isn't often what God means by relevant. Felix had no righteousness of his own, no self-control. And Paul, he wanted to shock Felix with the smelling salts of a coming judgment. One day Felix would stand before God in all of God's blazing holiness. And so will you and I. When Felix hears this, Luke records that Felix was alarmed. Some translations say trembled or was afraid. He began to tremble and sent Paul away. At the start of the sermon, when I mentioned the eternal spiritual dangers of procrastination, this, this is what I was talking about. Felix thinks, I'll get right with God later. I'll do my own thing now. I'll have sex with whoever I want to have sex with. I'll rule my kingdom however I want to rule. And if I feel like it later, I'll get right with God. Luke points out in verse 22, as I mentioned, that Felix had, quote, a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Felix knew about the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, the way of forgiveness, the way of everlasting enjoyment with God, but that's all he had, knowledge. He didn't couple that knowledge with humility and submission. And one day Paul tells him, he's going to be wrong to have procrastinated obedience to God. At the start of the sermon, I said that this passage confronts a spiritual temperament that needs to be confronted. That is the pride in our hearts that wants to have a version of Christianity that isn't warm and tender-hearted towards God, that's, that's soft, but rather one that's cool and aloof. A version of Christianity that's passionless and professional and has calculated affection. Which is to say, this passage challenges a version of Christianity that is no Christianity at all. At least not as it ought to be. Procrastination as a spiritual disposition of your heart is very dangerous. 
We're told that Felix was alarmed once. But we're not told it ever happened again. And when he had time to think about it, he got to wondering, maybe if I just leave Paul in prison, he'll give me a bribe. And maybe if I leave him in prison, it'll be doing the Jews a favor. In summary, Felix's chief concern is not obedience to God, but satisfying his greed and preserving his career. Two things that often keep us from following God wholeheartedly. The point for us is this. Delaying obedience today only makes obedience tomorrow harder. And maybe even impossible. Thankfully, God can do the impossible. Young people, I want to speak to you directly. Do not delay holiness for another day. I've done that before. The scars to show it. Young person, if you hear a voice in your head and your heart telling you not to follow God or telling you to delay following God, telling you it's okay not to be obedient to him, that it's okay to go after career, it's okay to, you know, career as you want to define it on your terms, and it's okay to look at whatever you want on your smartphone and, and to make your money and live your life and that someday in the future you'll get right with God then. I want to tell you that's not God's voice you hear. And to all of this, this isn't simply about the initial step of becoming a Christian. Who here doesn't have something that God wants to tell us? To be a Christian is to be a house where God takes up residence. And he's a home rebuilder. He's he's a remodeler. You can't just keep God in the living room or the kitchen. He, He wants to renovate the whole house. To be a Christian is to be a living version of a fixer-upper. <laughs> and that's good news. What rooms do you need to let God in so that he can repair you and restore you and you don't have to shove all that stuff in the closet and close the door when you have company, right? Maybe you need to tell somebody about what's in the closet. Delaying obedience won't make it easier. As we close... I want to come back to that word hope. We're told in verse 26 that Felix was hoping that Paul would give him a bribe. That understanding of hope is more like wishful thinking. It's pretty flimsy hope. But look with me back up further into the passage to Paul's courtroom defense. Look at verse 15. If you have a Bible, just just put your finger on the phrase there. Paul speaks of having a hope in God. He says, which these men themselves accept. Notice the phrase, having a hope in God. In this passage, who has real hope? Who has real hope? The kind of hope that changes you. These Jewish people would have said they had a hope in God, but do they? Not everyone who claims hope in God actually hopes in God. Some of you have been hurt by churches. You've been hurt by pastors. You've been hurt by religious organizations who said they hoped in God, 
but they didn't hope in God. If that's you, if you've been hurt, I want you to notice there is such a thing as a real hope, a changing hope, a life-giving hope, a hope that provides stability, that's sturdy. It's not flimsy. Who has that hope? It's only Paul. The Jews are frantic. They hire this big shot lawyer to lie for them. They're scrambling around five days. They throw this court case together. They resort to name calling. They're just grasping for for power and it's slipping through their hands like sand and they're terrified. So they hire Tertullius because they hope he will save them. That's the Jews and Felix, well, he just hopes he can have more money. And Paul is there in the thick of it. Couldn't be worse in a sense. He's up against well-funded Jewish religious machine in the court system of the massive Roman Empire. One commentator says, like, Paul's like a butterfly in front of a steamroller. But Paul knows they would have no power over him if we're not given from God above. God had promised that Paul would... St- that he'd stand by Paul, 23.11, Acts 23.11. Paul's okay. Paul's okay. Because he's enjoying the hope that comes with not procrastinating. Everything around him is crazy. But he has this peace in his life because he's following the living, resurrected Jesus And that changed everything for him. And I want to just say to to, to you and I that following today, wholeheartedly, the living, resurrected Jesus who forgives all of our sins will change everything for you. Would you join me in prayer as we invite the worship team to come back up? Heavenly Father, it's... It just feels to me that that there are people here um, that if we had hearts to hear it, Lord, there there would be things and worries that would would cause us to tremble. But Lord, I thank you that in in the story of Christianity, in true Christian preaching, in the spirit of the gospel, trembling is penultimate. It's not ultimate. Which is to say, trembling is the step before the other step. Trembling becomes before sturdy, rock-solid hope. And so I pray that you would pour that into our hearts. That you would even fall fresh on us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.